this is why trustworthy AI is so important. So the discipline of trusted AI is essentially building machine learning systems and AI systems that intentionally consider bias, intentionally consider privacy, and how data is being used to build these systems in a transparent way, and focus it on the value, ultimate value being created for humans and the ability to, to audit and understand if we see a pattern that we don't trust or we want to question, we understand where it learned that from, where it picked it up from. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Cal Aldubabe, who is a data scientist, an entrepreneur, and an AI expert. Cal is also the founder of Pandata, an organization which he started to help other organizations plan, design, and scale human-centered AI solutions that grow their bottom line. Pandata has overseen 80-plus transformative projects with leading global brands, including Highland Software, Parker Hannifin, the Cleveland Museum of Art, First Energy, and Penn State University. Cal is especially passionate about orchestrating inclusive teams that are empowered to build trustworthy, fair, transparent, and private AI solutions under the umbrella of a concept called Trusted AI, which we will explore much deeper in our conversation. Cal has been recognized as a notable immigrant entrepreneur, Cranes Cleveland 20 in their 20s, and a three-time Cleveland Smart 50 recipient. In addition to becoming the first data science graduate from Case Western Reserve University, Cal is also known for his role in advocating for careers and educational pathways in data science through workforce development initiatives. Please enjoy my conversation with Cal Aldubabe. So I'd love if you could start really with, you know, your your path to entrepreneurship, your interest in AI, you know, tell tell us your story and and how how it is you got here. Yeah, it's a it's been an interesting path to say the least, but just to kind of, you know, my my technical training um when I was in college, I I was studying uh computational neuroscience and working in healthcare research and I I became enamored with data, you know, working with questions like how do you keep a population healthy? What, what insights could you get by looking at health records? And I found myself um, around 2013, 2014, entering the field that we now know today as data science. Back then, there weren't a lot of data scientists, and it was an emerging field. And a lot of people were trained in one thing and then choosing to call themselves data scientists. So it was a really fun time. <laughs> And I got involved in startups just by being active in the research space and um, being involved with, um, at the time it was called the Blackstone Launchpad at Case Western. I met uh, Bob Sopko there at one of uh, the research fairs at Case Western. He said, have you ever thought about commercializing this? <laughs> <laughs> well, and the rest was, was history, but you know, I fell in love with data and the patterns and the things that you could do. And so by trade, I'm a data scientist. And by, uh, you know, trial and error and uh, learning the hard way, I became an entrepreneur. And, and maybe just to, to denote what it means, like what is data science to you? Well, that's a great question. What did it mean back then versus what did <laughs> right. it mean now? It was kind of the Wild West. <laughs> and, you know, uh, many of us now are familiar with dashboards and interactive ways to visualize data. Um, I mean, in 2013, 2014, very few of these tools actually existed. 
So you know, originally I got into the field when data science was simply the discipline of being able to make sense of data. Today, we've gotten a little bit more structured. Data science is more closely affiliated with machine learning, right? The discipline of being able to extract patterns at scale from data sets and start to build um, intelligent automation. So maybe just setting the scene for, for Pandata, I always like to hear, like, what was the founding insight? What were you focused on from a problem perspective? What, like, intellectually drew you to the problem space that Pandata ultimately has become to solve? So I'll tell you what Pandata does today, right? And I'll back into how I got there. We help organizations design and develop machine learning and AI-powered solutions. Um, And we're very focused today on uh, the concept of trustworthy artificial intelligence. So building automated systems that are transparent, ethical, fair, in the service of humans. But how did we get there? I initially started with my first venture, uh, a company called Triple Analytics, where um, I was dabbling in artificial intelligence applied to medical records. Can we use machines to automatically extract patterns and insights that identify unique treatment pathways that make sense for an individual based on their own individual characteristics and medical history? At the time, this was a relatively novel concept, but a really difficult problem to tackle. And I was a new entrepreneur, and I didn't have a lot of experience in product. So ultimately, that company failed, but I got to do some really cool things as far as partnerships with major healthcare systems and started Mm. working with some real-world medical data. The one thing I kept hearing over and over again from the, the clinicians I was partnering with is, we have data and we don't know what to do with it. So we offered to do some sorts of research pilots to try to get them to create partnerships with Triple Analytics. Of course, there's no money involved. They weren't paying for us to do that work. Right, right. Uh, I was trying to get access to the data to build some cool models. When Triple Analytics ultimately didn't work out, I had to end some of these research partnerships. And that upset some of these clinicians that to them, that was the most valuable aspect of their relationship. And so, you know, I asked the question, would you pay for this, right? Just the service. It never occurred to me that that was actually the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that was the, that was the birth of Pandata. I was like, huh, we have data. We don't know what to do with it. And as it turns out, it wasn't just hospitals that had that problem. It was organizations like, Parker Hannafin, Highland Software, First Energy, among some uh, many other clients we've worked with, including the Cleveland Museum of Art. And so it all started with, we have data, we don't know what to do with it, and this frustration of, wow, there's some patterns we really wish we could key off on or understand or, or help drive decision-making. And, and over the years, um, as the maturity of the industry has continued to evolve and as more data scientists have become prevalent, The nature of the problems we started focusing on were leaning more and more specialized into machine learning, you know, building large scale systems, pattern recognition on complex data sets. And as machine learning itself evolved and matured, we really started to notice that there was a lot of unintended consequences and issues. Um, You know, machine learning has went from the stage of pilots and experimentation to now being in production. And that comes with a whole host of issues. And so that's how we went from we have data, we don't know what to do with it, to, hey, we're experts in machine learning, to, hey, we help you design and develop machine learning the right way. 
Right. And, and from the company perspective, was it in those early days an exercise of just asking people like, hey, do you have data that you don't know what to do with? Or <laughs> what, what was kind of like the first break, if you will? There was a severe lack of data science talent in Northeast Ohio. When I started Pandata, if you did a search on LinkedIn of data scientists or data analytics, you would see fewer than 150 names. It's crazy. Mm. All of Northeast Ohio. I looked at Cleveland, Akron, <laughs> and like the sum of all titles in that. And a third of them worked for either Cleveland Clinic, IBM, or Progressive Insurance. So one, we, did, we clearly didn't have enough. Today, right. that number is getting closer and closer to 1,000. We still don't have enough. But the first big break was actually a, a partnership with a nonprofit called Digital C. And they were early, earlier in their creation were very focused on data literacy and digital literacy. So one of the programs that they wanted to, to get off the ground in partnership with us was a data science bootcamp. And that was Pandata's first big break. Like a client actually paid us to put together um, an end-to-end -end program to help create and produce other data scientists. And that gave us access to work with professionals from a lot of different companies um, when we started to branch out from there. Pandata has really grown largely through word of mouth over the past um, five years. And I think maybe just for myself and, and also yeah. for, for others, um, it, it will be helpful to just kind of understand the larger state of, of data science and AI today and maybe some of the history, like how, how we got here. Because I, th I think in practice, some of us have like some exposure to it AI in, in consumer products, you know, Netflix on, on like sure. the low end of the spectrum with like a recommendation <laughs> to like very high implication AI where maybe it's like enhancing worker capabilities or, or even replacing human decision making maybe at the far end of that spectrum. And just like how you kind of see the space today, what's, what's the size of it? And, and then we, I think, can get into exploring also some AI and data and we'll, we'll tie it back to, to Pandata. Sure. So that's a, wow, that's a loaded question. Like just a quick, like, you know, the history of like AI in like two minutes or less. In 2010s, it was all about pipelines. People couldn't get to their data. Data was trapped in like ERP systems and customer revenue management mm -hmm. systems that just simply weren't built for the purpose of pulling all this out to do modeling. Like all these systems were built to support very transactional purposes. Hey, I have a customer record, I'm gonna put it in. I'm gonna go look at the customer record now. They weren't built for, hey, maybe one day I might wanna look at you know, millions of data points related to these customers and then do some weird things like predict esoteric attributes that even the, these companies building these systems could build. So it was all about building pipelines. And believe it or not, in the you know, 2010 and 2015 range, just being able to build warehouses that could house this data at scale and allow people to just query it, that was a hard task. So early in the evolution of, of uh, machine learning and AI, that was the focus. Then there is this race of, okay, now we have the data, what do we do with it? We don't know. And that's you know, when Pandata started, right? We have data, <laughs> we don't know what to do with it. It's like, well, we, we built all these pipelines, Okay, what questions are we trying to answer? And so folks were starting to figure out, okay, how can we look at data? How do we look at it without drawing the wrong conclusions? And as the compute power right, became less of a barrier to being able to build more and more sophisticated models, we started to really get good at prediction. 
In fact, there's a, a famous case where Target was sending targeted ads and they could predict that someone was pregnant, right? This was a big news headline before the person even knew they were pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy how accurate we could get with prediction with the right scale of data. And so the, the you know, building models was the next big phase. And now we're entering this territory of, well, we've realized that machine learning and AI have gotten quite sophisticated, quite powerful. Um, we've reduced the barriers of being able to build AI tools on things like voice, images, video, natural language, you name it. And we're starting to ask the question of, well, what safeguards do we need to put around it? So we're kind of almost taking a step back and realizing there's there's a lot of you know safety that and risk management that has to go along with building successful AI systems. And so that's the state of the industry today. And you asked me a question of how close are we to like full automation? Not at all. In fact, I, I find artificial intelligence to be deeply problematic because it implies automation. In fact, the most successful systems are ones that are like, how do we intentionally design a system to cut through the noise and make a human's job easier and focused on the more creative, complex work? Yeah, no, I, I, the augmentation makes a lot of sense. It's, it's what I also spend a lot of time thinking about, just the, the nature of what we're doing at Actual. One thing I really want to explore more, because I, I think it's also more in your wheelhouse, is this, this concept of trusted AI. Yeah. And as I was reading about, you know, just the work that you're doing and and preparing for this, I I remembered the, this like Microsoft fiasco on Twitter a few years back. And so like, as I remember it, and you can add some color here, but you know, over time, as you feed more and more data to these systems, there are biases that can emerge and they can start doing crazy stuff. And I, I think we've seen this play out in a lot of the text generation models, but, but Microsoft had this uh, notorious Twitter bot that started getting fed more and more data and and it really became horribly racist like yes. very quickly Point blank. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so maybe these kinds of things happen and I, I think it was uh, maybe a good a good wedge to talk about trusted AI and and why is it that inclusion matters in this space and, and how you think about that overall so you know, not only was it racist, but it also became very mean. <laughs> just like it was just rude <laughs> to people. <laughs> so you know, let's talk about like the the purest definition of artificial intelligence. It's essentially software that excels at recognizing and reacting to complex patterns, and it can produce new and novel results in situations it might not have explicitly seen before. Right? Instead of giving it hard sets of rules, it's kind of learning to infer rules related to these patterns. So chatbots, where it's actually creating you know, text, uh, it's, it's nothing more than a parrot today. It's saying, okay, well, this is the next most likely word that makes sense here. The problem that we have when we're building these models at scale is a chatbot that really seems very human-like in its output um, is typically exposed to millions of examples of sentences or things people have said, billions of documents. The most powerful text ge generation algorithm that exists today is called GPT-3. And you may have heard mm -hmm. of it. It's been in the news a lot lately. It, it's used to power a lot of these creative assistant type tools. And that was exposed to billions of documents that spanned everything from just generic human knowledge to blog posts to you know snippets of code. 
it's near impossible to actually audit and understand everything it's been exposed to. And the level of potential toxicity or correctness or lack of correctness of the examples it's seen. So all it's doing is it's learning these patterns. And if it sees enough of a certain type of pattern, whether or not that pattern is good or wrong, it learns to recreate that pattern or key in on it. And the way we see AI go wrong, I mean, there's no shortage of examples. Tay was one, but something a little bit less extreme than a, a mean racist chatbot that still nonetheless had catastrophic outcomes was healthcare, uh, in, in a healthcare system. Um, this was a few years ago now. There's actually algorithms used widely across uh, healthcare systems that impact over 100 million patients a year um, that are used to predict things like how likely is this patient to be readmitted or have um, you know, additional complications. And hospitals use this to prioritize who should be getting more care, who should be scheduled for follow-up to try to reduce these outcomes. Great area, makes sense to use machine learning for this. What ended up happening was in this particular case, white patients and black patients that were equally at risk, the black patients would get a lower risk score, effectively putting the white patients ahead of line for prioritized care and black patients ended up having worse outcomes. Hmm. How does this happen? The pattern that was learned in this instance was people who come from, people who come from certain zip codes historically have fewer visits. And so it learned fewer visits equals less risk. And it attributed that, that outcome to that group. So when we talk about building these models that recognize patterns at scale, and we have very limited tools to inspect and interrogate what, it's, what patterns it's actually learning, um, this is where we start to enter into like da the, the danger territory. So this is why trustworthy AI is so important. So the discipline of trusted AI is essentially building machine learning systems and AI systems that intentionally consider bias, intentionally consider privacy, and how data is being used to build these systems in a transparent way, and focus it on the value, ultimate value being created for humans and the ability to, to audit and understand if we see a pattern that we don't trust or we want to question, we understand where it learned that from, where it picked it up from. Mm. A few, a few follow-ups on that. It's a can of worms. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's it's very it's very interesting though. So there's these ideas of fairness, transparency, privacy. From the transparency perspective, yeah, is it that most systems today are opaque that are implementing this machine learning and, and AI work, or is it that it's hard to like? If you were to try and figure out where the bias comes from, is that hard to do? So, you know, just to give you a simplistic example of a model, how a model might work. Let's say we're trying to predict house prices. And all we have is square feet, right? For, you know, we, we come up with, we try to build a model that looks at house prices and the number of square feet and tries to come up with an estimate of, okay, for each square foot, how much should I add to the price of a home? That's a very interpretable, explainable model. If we give it like a thousand square feet, we'd expect to see a certain answer. We can make that model a little bit more complex. We can give it square feet and maybe a zip code, right? So we add more and more things. We can still back into that. Think of these as features that span a spreadsheet. Imagine if you had a thousand of those. Imagine if you had a million of them. Imagine if they weren't as clear cut as square feet and zip code that are things that a human could interpret. 
Maybe it's some weird complication that a model has decided is, oh, if I multiply a square foot by, you know, whatever and add to it these other weird features that I found over here, it helps me predict the price with a lot more accuracy. As we've gotten more and more complex models and gotten better and better at more sophisticated feature engineering, our models have gotten more accurate, but harder for humans to interrogate. So it might tell you this is why I predicted this, but it ultimately would make no sense to even the data scientists training the model. So that's why we have an issue with like the opacity of models. It's not that we, you know, we're, we're intentionally designing them this way. It's the, the ability to build more accurate models has come at the expense of being able to explain them. And so now a lot of energy and a lot of really smart people are working on, can we build more accurate models that are also equally like interpretable or explainable? Or can we back into some of trying to understand in human language why a model's making the decision that it's making? In fact, the EU right now is proposing legislation that's going to require certain levels of transparency depending on the severity of the application and the consequence it might have on humans. Yeah, I imagine the the regulatory side also has some implications, and I'll, I'll ask about that in a sec, but I, just to kind of round out trusted AI, and maybe this is almost like a philosophical question, but what what is fairness? Like, how do you d- discern that in a in a model? I point people to this YouTube talk that talks about 18 different definitions of fairness, <laughs> most of which all contradict each other. <laughs> so I'll give you the short answer. I'll save you some time. It's a great hour-long lecture, It's but you don't need to watch the whole thing. You know, at the end of the day, we have to define fairness mathematically. And different definitions of fairness can even contradict each other mathematically. There's no universal definition. It depends on a case-by-case situation. And having the right decision makers and stakeholders that are representative of the humans that an algorithm might impact, coming to consensus over what we're going to determine as fair in this specific situation. So it's not cut and dry. There's no hope of automating this away. It requires people, and it requires people that look like the people the model might impact. And that really matters. Hmm. So, you know, long story short, it it really does depend. All right. Just one or two more macro questions here, and we'll bring it back to Pandata. Uh, On the the regulatory front, though, I think it's interesting from a regulatory standpoint because often... What I've seen is that regulation follows very acute, specific examples that everyone kind of latches onto the narrative around. Something like the racist Twitter bot from Microsoft, yeah. or or the the healthcare um, example you described. And so, just like what what does the the regulation look like today, and and how do you see it affecting the the landscape? The regulation is non-existent today. And this is part of the problem. We've been able to do things and we now have companies deciding, should we do this? Is this fair? Is this right? We're going to put together a little committee and then they're going to decide for us. But there's not been any legislation that's come out yet. GDPR is something a lot of people are now familiar with. That's the global data protection and regulations out of the EU. And it's this notion of you have the right to be forgotten. You have the right to understand how your data is being used. It was initially implemented with a focus on EU citizens, but they told American companies, if you have data on EU citizens, we'll come after you and fine you. 
this caused a lot of multinational companies to react and change their and scramble to change their practices. And now we all know when we go to a website, we see the thing that says, accept all cookies. This is what's being collected, right? That was the actual impact of that legislation we're seeing years later. California has since adopted certain laws and other states are following suit. We're now seeing EU do the same thing again, but with AI and specifically focusing on how risk should be looked at with respect to AI systems, right? There's designations like this is going to impact life or death, or this could impact fairness or treatment, or this might have no impact at all. And they're stipulating certain levels of controls and audits and, you know, requirements like how explainable can models or should models be in these situations. And there's some pretty hefty fines associated with violating these rules. In an earlier version of the proposed legislation, up to 6% of a company's annual revenues. Like they're, they're not messing around here. So what I suspect is going to happen, some version of that law is going to come out. And we're going to see the same thing happen in the AI space that happened with the broader data space with GDPR. If there's one lesson that we can learn from that is the companies that weren't prepared for it and didn't take it seriously ended up getting fined and eventually found their way there in two to three years or ultimately abandoned the tools and solutions they're building. So if there's one aha from this, like people dabbling in the space, is starting to build for the fact that this is coming and there isn't this wild west, you know, unlimited runway in the machine learning and AI space anymore. Right. And so in a lot of ways, as as I am understanding it, you've essentially positioned Pandata to be ahead of that wave that is coming and helping folks in some ways prepare. Indeed, right? How do you build AI systems the right way? There's the, the quick way to, hey, we're going to build a model, it predicts some things, and we're going to put it in production. And that it doesn't necessarily guarantee risk, but it opens you up to some risk. What we do is we help organizations think about, you know, all these considerations that help keep them safe and understand when, hey, they're building this in this way on these data sets. If you're not putting these safeguards in place, could open you up to risk down the line. So take us from the, the digital C days to today. Like what, what has transpired in, in Pandata's life here and how do you talk about the state of the business as it is right now? So I'm really excited about where we're headed this year, but I'll kind of give you the stages of evolution from like an entrepreneur's perspective. The first couple of years of Pandata felt uh, it was a little bit more like a solopreneur with a few resources that I was working with on the team. Um, our COO, Nicole Ponstangle, uh, joined the team in, I want to say, 2015. And that's really when we first started to have some data scientists that we were hiring, bringing on. And instead of just operating as an independent consultant, we were actually operating as a team on projects. And that was exciting. Pandata grew quite a bit from 2016 to 17. Um, and we really started maturing our practice. You know, as we shifted into focusing on machine learning and AI, um, we've gotten a lot bit a lot better at having uh, standard offerings like discovery and design, where we have a standard repeatable process to help organizations quickly prototype AI capabilities. And we're reducing the complexity involved in getting models into production. So I'm really excited. Um, we just formed a, uh, a exciting relationship with a company called H2O. Uh, it reduces the barriers to building and monitoring uh, transparent models in production mm -hmm. to build intelligent apps. 
And we're, you know, we're, we're working on a really cool partnership targeted at startups in the middle market. So a lot of this year is going to be focused on bringing that to a larger audience and getting more startups building these cool tools and intelligently automated processes. Can you give us an overview of what have been some of the, the projects and deployments you've worked on? Maybe, maybe some of your favorite examples of companies you've helped and, and what, they're, what they're doing and what the, what the outcomes have been. Yeah, one of my my favorite projects was with the Cleveland Museum of Art. It's it's always cool because, you know, when you talk about data science and AI and then a museum, you're like, what's the connection there? <laughs> they, you know, we're blessed here. It's the second best art museum in the country, second only to the Met, and it's 100% free. So what that means is fewer ticketed opportunities fewer opportunities to understand where guests are going in the space and how they interact with the art. Our museum also invests a lot in technology, like the interactive space, um, an art lens gallery, um, if you've been there and seen that, but also some of the, the more recent exhibitions that involve virtual reality. So the biggest question on their mind is, is this working? And so we, we help them leverage the data in their Wi-Fi system, understanding how individuals were navigating the space and we came across some really cool insights like people who spent five minutes or more in the art lens gallery space were likely to spend up to an hour longer on average in a museum than people who didn't Hmm. so that was a really cool project it involved like some messy data we're working with wi-fi kings off of routers but we're translating that into a story that's understanding where people are going in a privacy preserving way and how long they were spending in different galleries. And that that gave us some really cool insights. Another one that I love is in the healthcare space. And we were working with a company involved with health insurance claims. And they they tried to identify patients that could qualify for better subsidies uh, from the government. And they basically mined this data and identify patients that could qualify. They help the patient get access to better care and they help the insurance company cover it. So everybody wins all around. And uh, we help them uh, basically, you know, translate 30 million or so patients and their medical records into a powerful tool that can identify with a lot more precision uh, which ones would qualify for this, especially as regulations change and especially as different judges or case managers reviewing these applications might react to the applications. And we also did it in a way that helped them understand which minority groups were having harder times getting through the process. Mm. So we ultimately helped them grow their revenue um, in that business line by over 30% by helping them identify people with greater precision. In your experience kind of working with the, the breadth of companies that you have, do you think the winners in this world will be the ones that have been more like AI first companies from inception or older companies sitting on data trying to figure out a new way of thinking and incorporating it into new models? Well, the good news is the data to be able to build almost any type of model can be acquired now with such fewer barriers. In fact, in some cases, you don't even need to build or train your own models. There's a lot of building blocks and design blocks out there. Um, I don't know that it makes a difference to be an AI first company it does make a difference to be a data-first company and understanding that ultimately, Mm. right, whenever you're investing in building an AI system, it ultimately depends on the quality of the data that the model, the building block, was originally trained on. 
and how much you can trust that. Winners in this space also understand that this is an experimental process, right? AI isn't a, a one and done thing. It's a portfolio mindset. What I mean by that is when you're building a model to, let's say, uh, predict likelihood of a customer to churn or a recommendation that might create more engagement or any number of things, right? You can't guarantee 100% performance. You might at best be able to say this works a little bit better on this type of situations and a little bit less reliably in these types of situations, but expecting 100% just doesn't work. So companies that understand that and understand how to build around the failure cases, okay, is this still usable if it fails? What do we do? Does this open us up to any risk if it fails? How do we handle that? And if a project ultimately fails, what do we learn from it? And what are we going to invest in next instead of running away from it? So these are common traits of organizations we see that use AI successfully. So I imagine that you now also sit on a lot of data, uh, having worked with all these companies. And I'm curious if you've asked yourself the question, what do we do with it? Has Pandata, is the, is the path in your mind, the trajectory to continue to kind of work on projects? Or is there an opportunity to kind of productize some of what you've learned over the past few years? It's an interesting question. We've definitely seen some repeat pain points. Today, there is a huge explosion in AI-powered tools. So for now, we're staying out of that race. <laughs> we don't actually own any of the rights to any of the data we work with for our clients. So interestingly enough, Pandata has like the tiniest amount of data that we have in our database systems. Uh, but we're, we're seeing like constant patterns. So if there were an area we would double down on, it would be AI applied to voice tech. There is so much of it out there that is untapped and there's so many cool things that you can do with it. If you have a teeny tiny call center that handles 10,000 calls a year, which is relatively small in the grand scheme of things, uh, lasting three to five minutes each, that's over a thousand hours of customers telling you exactly what they want. And companies only ever analyze a fraction of it for quality control purposes. So, you know, that that's just a scale of data and insight on, on consumer behavior that's exploding these days. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned kind of looking forward uh, in the year, there's a handful of things that they're looking forward to, excited about. What are, what are some of those things? Well, I'm really excited about this uh, relationship with H2O. Typically, you know, this is a tool that's been available to enterprises that have large data science teams. And a big barrier for a lot of startups getting involved in the AI space is the cost of being able to access a data scientist, hiring one, having the right tools to accelerate the time to delivering on value. And having this unique partnership that's focused on serving startups specifically, I'm really excited to see what we do with some of our startup clients, uh, but also getting to reach more startups that are interested in building these types of tools um, to, to add competitive advantage to their arsenal. I know it can always be a little bit challenging to look too far into the future, yeah. um, <laughs> but you know, ultimately, like when you think about the vision for the future of Pandata, like yeah. what is the actual impact that you hope to have looking back and have accomplished with with the company? So, yeah, you know, clear, simple. We, with our ten year big, hairy, audacious goal in our company, I don't know if you're a fan of EOS or have heard of it, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. So we've got our ten year BHAG, and 
uh, stated, it's creating a billion dollars in value for other organizations. So we hold ourselves accountable in projects of documenting, all right, what was the impact here? What was the economic value? What were the intangible values and how did we help? Our goal is to have one of the most diverse data science teams. We really believe in the power of if you're going to build trustworthy AI systems, you need to have diverse people at the table. Um, so that's something that we're making a, a big dent on as well. And uh, I want to look at, you know, Pandata in 10 years from now, let's say we've continued to grow. How cool would it be to have a group of 100 of the most diverse data scientists that have helped collectively create mm-hmm. a billion dollars in value for other organizations over the course of the years? If there's anything that I've learned from growing Pandata is the state of AI changes year to year. In fact, there's things that are just <laughs> true today that weren't true six months ago. And we spend a lot of time and energy staying up to date with the field. So it's really cool being in a position where we're constantly helping other organizations navigate the changes. You know, I get asked a lot, Do you can you imagine your job being automated away? Um, <laughs> No, there's so much work to be done and figuring out. The one guarantee I have is going to look totally different in two to three years from now than it looks today. And that's kind of what we're in the business of of doing and staying ahead of. It's one of the the questions I had for you, actually, which is knowing how quickly the space changes, how is it that you stay abreast of all the stuff that you that you need to, how do you kind of parse signal from noise as you make your way through the developments? And like, what, what do you wish that you understood well today that, that you don't about the space? So there's things that I wish I was doing more of. I wish I was getting more <laughs> involved in the modeling. And this is something I've had to kind of step away from. An area that I just, I'm enamored by is natural language processing and generation. I've got great team members that are staying up to speed with the advances, but that's an area that I wish I could personally dive a little bit deeper into. Just, I think it's cool being able to understand the puzzle of how we communicate and then how you do cool things with it, um, in a, with a program. But something that you know I, I theorized earlier on when we were growing Pandata is we really need to limit and cap how many hours we're spending on projects. And you were consulting practice. At the end of the day, we make money when we're working on projects. We have the billable hour. It's the enemy. I hate it, but it's kind of how we have to have these transactions run with our clients. And whether we do it fixed fee or not, there's still this effort. So this idea of our hours is our inventory and therefore hours is our revenue. And then saying something as crazy as we're going to limit it at a certain amount for each consultant across our team so that we always have space to stay abreast of all the changes invest in taking courses and attending conferences and understanding like all the latest and greatest happening in the space seemed a little bit crazy. But that's part of how we've been able to grow Pandata over the years. Um, We exclusively hire associate data scientists and train them up from within. We make it a part of our culture that ongoing learning and education is a part of what we do and a part of thriving here. Uh, So if you want to be doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to get burnt out. But if you want to constantly be learning and growing, we created the right environment to allow that to happen. So that's part of how we stay ahead of it. And we've managed to to work it out so that we can still be profitable while allocating the time to learn and grow. And what that means for our clients is we're always able to help them stay ahead of these changes and sift through the noise themselves. Yeah, one of the the other questions that I, you keep getting ahead of me on these, which is awesome, um, 
is how you think about scaling an organization like your own. So most of what Pandata has done up until now has been word of mouth. Deliver on value and continue to find new ways to create value for the organizations we're working with. Invest in education. I spend a lot of time going to conferences and talking, sharing lessons learned, sharing how we failed, how we failed with clients and how others can avoid these. And by doing that, we were able to grow and attract and work with new clients and continue working with the same clients that we have had in new ways. Um, We have got a lot of clients now that we've been working with for two to three years. The one thing I wish I had done more of earlier on was recognize the importance of partnerships. So this partnership I've been talking about with H2O, it's really key. If I could go back in time a few years and do one thing differently, it would have been attach ourselves to a racehorse that is a value-add tool that helps make machine learning easier and become experts in that space, in that tool or platform sooner and help other organizations use it to create value instead of kind of reinventing the wheel over and over again. Mm. So I really see this helping us scale at a much faster clip than we have been over the past few years. I want to bookend our, our conversation here with uh, a few other questions. Sure, of course. Tangentially related. I know you have this involvement with the Entrepreneurs Organization. Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and and kind of its its role in your journey? So I am an engineer by training and my dad's an engineer and I have no one in my family that's an entrepreneur. I didn't even know it was an option to start a company when I was in college. It was Bob Sopko tapping me on the shoulder saying, have you thought about commercializing this? And I said, sure, I can start a company. Yeah, why not? Gotta so, love Bob. <laughs> he's a great guy. And he, I attribute all this mess to him also. Uh, so that, that being said, I, I really had no one in my sphere uh, that was an entrepreneur. I didn't know entrepreneurs. I didn't have mentors. In my first venture, I participated in this competition called GSEA, Global Student Entrepreneur Awards. And it's now been featured on Disney+. Plus. Really cool. It's a competition by EO, global network of 14,000 or so entrepreneurs worldwide that had businesses over a million dollars in revenue. I started there as a student entrepreneur, got to represent the U.S. on the global stage, top 40 out of 2,000 students worldwide, and I got to meet some really cool people. Many of them had multiple businesses that were really large, and it was inspiring to just hear their stories and absorb from how they think, how they processed, how they thought about entrepreneurship. So fast forward, I joined EO Cleveland's Accelerator Program that helps organizations grow over that million-dollar mark. And a year ago, we gradu- I graduated and joined EO and have started to lead the Accelerator program, which is really cool for a lot of reasons. One, we started the year with 80% of our group being women-owned businesses. And this year, we're on track to graduate the single largest number of women-owned businesses over that million-dollar mark. I feel so passionate about my work there because when you transform the businesses that are growing and scaling in a community you have a direct and material impact on their employees and the people they employ in the communities that they come from. And they have, they have a large presence here in Cleveland. Yeah, we've got a little over 100 members in the Cleveland chapter, and then we're now approaching 40 members in the Accelerator program. Amazing. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a, an organization that's built around this idea of we, we learn from each other, Uh, We bring in -in once-in-a-lifetime speakers with great stories to tell, 
uh, foundations of, you know, share from experience. And it's completely transformed the way I think about business and the way I approach problem solving, right? You get to absorb the wisdom of others in a, in a faster way than trying to figure it out the hard way. And it's really great to hear that other people were exactly where you were <laughs> stuck. <laughs> and comforting to know that it's totally like it's, it's natural and normal. So it's been a, a great tool to help me leapfrog Pandata. We certainly wouldn't be the size that we are today if I hadn't joined EO. Yeah, other other people have figured it out. Um, yeah, and you you do not have to <laughs> to reinvent the wheel. No, especially <laughs> when it comes to like a business. A business is a skeleton. What you do might be a little bit different <laughs> at the end of the day, but running a business is pretty much the same no matter what you're doing. Yeah. So with that, I'll, we'll we'll kind of wrap it out. What have been some of your learnings uh, in your entrepreneurial journey as you kind of reflect on the company building process? What are the things that that you're taking with you today? So I, I've got a I've got a whole list. I'm I'm going to give you my cliff notes of my favorites. Yeah. Um, learn to say no. That was one of the most valuable lessons, and I keep learning this lesson again and again over the years in just different ways. When you say no to the wrong clients, you say yes to a lot more of the right clients. When you filter out noise up front, you get to spend more time doing the things that matter and make a difference. Another thing that I learned is the value of being vulnerable. Nobody's trying to steal your secrets. If you waste time trying to put up a front of like, you have it all figured out and don't ask for help when you need help, guess what? You're not going to get help. So I've really learned, especially over the past two years, of all the craziness of running a business during the pandemic, <laughs> uh, which is its own other podcast topic. Yep. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just the value of being able to approach someone and say, this is where I'm at, or this is where I'm struggling. Can you help me? Has made a total difference in, in just, I'm shocked. People want to help when you ask for help. So the, the last thing that I, I'd say I wish I had learned earlier on as an entrepreneur is the value of having difficult conversations and running at the difficult conversation instead of away from them. Inevitably, there are these uncomfortable things, right? Someone might have been a good fit for the organization at one point, but is no longer a good fit. And we have this kind of perceived sense of, well, I want to do right by them. Instead of having the conversation of like, hey, the needs of the organization are changing. Where are you at? What should we do about this? How do we arrive at a conclusion here? I've really had to learn a lot of that in the last 12 months. So those three things for me, right? Um, you know, learn to say no, be vulnerable, and run towards the difficult conversations. Because it's it's, you, can, you can have a difficult conversation and still be a kind, nice person who does right by other people. Those all resonate quite a, <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. So the, the closing question for, for everyone on, on the show so far is painting a collective collage here of, of not necessarily people's favorite things in Cleveland, but of things that other people may not know about. And so with that, I will ask you for what are your favorite hidden gems in Cleveland? So, I mean, I've talked about this already, but I'll say it again. The Cleveland Museum of Art, I'm shocked. I'm floored by the number of people who, who live here. And they're like, yeah, I, I was there 10 years ago once. <laughs> it is such an amazing international gem, beautiful setting. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. Um, if you haven't gone, you got to go. But that aside, like one of my, my favorite things just to, to enjoy 
is our park system. We have um, one of the best park systems in the country. Uh, there's a lot of investment going into it. Got great trails if you're a runner. And if you like the waterfront, like Edgewater Park is pretty special. So I just, I love enjoying the, the nature that we have around us and um, the Cleveland Museum of Art. I mean, two things that just never get old. They really don't. They really don't. <laughs> Well, Kyle, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing your story and, and the work you're doing at, at Pandata. That's very exciting. I, I so appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, I, I hope everyone out there enjoys the, the lessons learned and uh, checks out some of the fun things Cleveland has to offer. I'm really excited for the budding entrepreneurship scene here. Me, me as well. If folks have anything they'd like to follow up with you about, what is the best way for them to do so? You can find me on LinkedIn. My last name is Al Dubabe, spelled the traditional way. <laughs> but if you look up talent and data, uh, you will find me. So yeah, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to I'd love to hear what you're working on. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.